This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations, the show that aims to elevate the conversation about cannabis to a higher level. I'm your host, Paul, and today we welcome Adolfo Gonzalez. Adolfo is currently working with Sensi Brands and is known to many in Canada as the former headmaster of CannaReps, the institution behind the Cannabis Sommelier Certification. Adolfo has an overwhelming passion for cannabis, a vast knowledge of genetics and growing, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome him to the show today as I merely scratch the surface of his cannabis knowledge. Before the interview begins, I must note that I had some technical difficulties throughout the recording of this episode due to internet connection issues on my end, and this is the result of Australia's miserably poor internet infrastructure, and at times, it does impact the listening experience. I'm sorry, but I assure you that Adolfo is well worth it. If you enjoy the show, make sure you follow us on your platform of choice and on Instagram, at GiveAndToke. But for now, enjoy the show. Today I welcome to the show somebody who really lit a fire underneath me during my time in Canada. Welcome to the show, Adolfo. Thank you for having me. In May 2019, I had the privilege of joining you at the time you were working for Canna Reps, running these amazing workshops, establishing what a cannabis sommelier is. And I remember sitting in UBC that day thinking, I know the least out of anybody in this room. And instead of that intimidating me, I thought that means something, that's inspiring something. I've got to learn everything I can. And really since that course, man, I have been pursuing everything that I can and trying to find out everything I can. The more that I learn, the more that I realize I don't know. So it's a real pleasure to have you here today with your wealth of knowledge. So tell the listeners, what is it that you do in the cannabis industry? Well, um, I was basically the person who wrote the Cannabis Sommelier Certification that kind of became a standard in Canada and in other parts of the world. Um, we are the oldest uh, Cannabis Sommelier Certification in existence. Very proud uh, of what was accomplished in that company. Uh, before then, I was a longtime activist and somebody who worked in the R&D sector mostly, working with patients, collecting data from them and figuring out what type of uh, ratio and cultivar was working best for specific types of conditions. So stuff like that. Yeah. That's really, really impressive. Your vast amount of experience and your broad experience in the industry is what builds so much knowledge. And you developed this cannabis sommelier course. And I do remember when I did the course, you know, you've got a few people that scoff. They're like, oh, what's a cannabis sommelier? How can you be that? So can you describe a little bit more about what a cannabis sommelier does, what they what they are. I still remember you using the word, they're a guide. Yeah, we're a guide and a host. I think a lot of people are confused because uh, the wine industry oftentimes gets a bad rap, which I don't think they deserve, by the way. Uh, wine people are super chill and we have a lot to learn. If you like wine and you get to know somebody who's passionate about wine, you know, it really, it really opens you up that way, right? Cannabis familiar is that person that really is trying to open up the community to join us, to be part and parcel of the cannabis community. It used to be a very exclusive group. We used to be a group of people that were difficult to access because we were called criminals. <laughs> and slowly now, yeah, slowly now, uh, we're revealing ourselves to the world. And honestly, the people that were always best at selling weed 
know how to build relationships, know how to make people comfortable, no matter who that person is. That's the number one thing. If you don't know how to build relationships in the world of cannabis, you can't survive. You can't sell pallets and pallets of weed if people don't like you and trust you. And really, that's what the cannabis sommelier is. It's just a chill person whose opinion you trust about weed because they actively study the market from a professional gustatory appreciation approach. So we're not just people that are like geeky about weed. We have methods and we have science that stands behind what we do, as well as like that je ne sais quoi that is our uh, the focus of uh, flavor and effect, which is very difficult to pin down exactly what flavor a person is going to like, exactly what type of effect they're going to get from a particular cultivar until they go through it. And so I think the cannabis familiar man has to be humble, right? It's this person that's humble, not a weed geek that's like, man, like telling you and talking down to you. <laughs> I think that's the most important thing we teach. You, you were in my class, you know what's up. And you've, I think, uh, I haven't seen you at the study halls yet, but uh, if you come to study hall, you'll notice how our entire community is just like that. We're really chill. We're not about talking down. We're about making anybody who walks into the door feel comfortable in talking about approaching using cannabis, right? So that's what cannabis sommelier is. Just like a wine sommelier, we explain the culture. We are the culture. We're ambassadors of the culture, yeah? I think that's a really important point. You spoke about the exclusivity that can kind of come with cannabis and some of that almost gatekeeping that exists as the old meets the new. But you're right. As I entered that classroom, knowing so little, I still felt welcomed. I still felt I need to learn this stuff, not, oh, I'm stupider than these people. I don't know how to grow. I've never done this thing. I can access this. I can do it. And so your vision is coming to life because I got to live that. So it's a great course and definitely uh, an essential experience for anyone that intends on being in the industry and, and guiding people through a cannabis experience. So thank you for that description. It's uh, something people should pursue and look into. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, we just like food, man. Everybody that, you know, it's a normal human thing to do is my point. Especially I think it's funny because Australia and UK, as I've, I live in UK and I have a lot of Australian friends from the past. I'm a surfer. So in my town, Australian surfers are, you know, they're, they're everywhere in Mexico, you know? We do have so that habit of going everywhere. Yeah. Well, when I went to Bali, man, oh my God, Australians <laughs> run that place, man. They, they're some of the best fucking surfers there too, man. <laughs> Big respect to everybody down there. Um, yeah, I, I found such a humongous amount of stigma that's built into this community of UK, New Zealand a little bit less, but uh, I think uh, it's a a big moment, I think, for an Australian person to realize that a cannabis sommelier culture exists already, first of all. There's people that have been taking this very seriously from a professional standpoint for a while. I I tell people that I, I wrote this down, but I've been practicing these methods and thinking in this way for a very long time. I've obviously refined my methods and my ideology over time because I became better connected and spoke to more people that are even more educated than me and built my own perspective built based on their research and their work. So, yeah, it's, I think that Australia and the UK uh, have, a, they have a big awakening moment still to happen where they realize that it's okay to love this stuff and to love it 
deeply and to talk about it not like it's some giggly oh my god haha it's like sex used to be or something yeah. you know it's like is we just need to l- realize that this is a beautiful plant that doesn't do damage to anybody she grows like any other plant and that uh there's these things that are happening in the marketplace that a specialist it takes a specialist it's funny because people laugh right they're like oh so you're telling me that the job of a sommelier is basically to taste sweet all day to talk about what they've tasted and to share that passion for what they've tasted and what's good and what's not. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. That's my life. That's what my life has been for almost a decade. And I'll tell you something. Uh, it's such a beautiful life. If you can figure out a way to make a living that way, it's, it's hard to convince companies that they need you. But once you can get to that place where, cause that's part of taking the stigma apart, right? The people running the companies. And all of these countries need to realize that ooh, a curator, a professional cannabis curator, is maybe a good thing for me to have on staff. Because, <laughs> you know, it's maybe it's at the core of my business model. I don't know. And being such a new industry, you see kind of old rules being translated. You know, a lot of the kind of booze frameworks, both in staffing, in approach to brands and things like that, have just been transferred. And we do need those passionate people in those positions to talk about what quality cannabis is and what a good experience is, because otherwise it's just another commodity. In a way, it's a shame this is an audio-only podcast because when you speak about Cannabis Adolfo, the smile on your face beams across the screen. So you kind of mentioned that prior to Cannareps, you were an activist. You spent time in R&D. Obviously, being a part of the cannabis community involves taking risks at times and actually being on the kind of wrong side of the law. So talk to me a little bit about your personal experience with cannabis and why it is you are so passionate. When you speak, you've got that smile on your face. Well, yeah. I mean, I moved to Canada to be able to grow weed and to consume weed safely because I knew that about, there was one thing my father and I knew about this place <laughs> that the police were not like the police in my country, that the gangsters were not like the gangsters in my country and that a guy like me and like my father and my mother who are lovers of this plant every day, we're interacting with it. We just love it. We, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, a Mecca to come here. So when I moved here, my first interaction with the street was like, I got off the plane, literally off the plane. I I dropped my bags out of my hotel room and immediately I met somebody that was dealing on a street corner. And for me, somebody openly dealing on a street corner was like an alien thing to see because in Mexico, you got to be like tucked away somewhere. There's a whistle (laughs) and some guy comes out of a bush and they're like, there's trust me. Like in Mexico, I have some stories, man. Like literally this whistle thing is not a joke. There was one dealer who lived across the river and you have to go, you know how we Mexicans, we all know how to whistle. That's one thing. I'd be screwed. Yeah, dude, you're born. So you make this particular whistle and the guy pops out of his little hut and he would like chuck you the weed across the river in the form of like a football that he had wrapped. Yeah. Cause you're going to buy like, you know, you're buying a couple ounces always in Mexico. You never right. buy like an eighth. Yeah. That didn't used to happen in my youth. You're buying like, you want a quarter kilo? You want a half kilo? You want a whole kilo? What do you want? Yeah. This dude, a whole kilo was like $200, man. Oh my so, God. You know, yeah, man. Yeah, man. 2000 pesos. You can get that all the time. The brick weed. Uh, the better stuff from Oaxaca, back in Mexico, obviously, was a lot more expensive even in my, in my youth. There was always good weed in Mexico. Always good weed everywhere. In, in Mexico, a lot of my friends got killed. That's the, the wrong side of the law in my country, is the, the law of the gangster. 
So I've had friends of mine that they've taken their heads and left it on their car for their family to see because they were selling hash in the wrong side of the street to the wrong people. So in Mexico, that's the experience that I have. And that's the kind of thing that people like me flee. That's why people like me can't go back. I actually went to work a little bit in Sinaloa. And I very quickly left because Sinaloa, even if you're working for the government, I found out you're working for the narcos. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, so, uh, Sinaloa and Mexico as a whole is a place that leaves you a lot of respect for that world. Uh, Leaves you a lot of respect for the narcos and it makes you not want to fuck with their shit ever. You just don't want to even, you don't even want to come near it because that's how powerful they are and you know it and you respect it and and you just... You want to do your shit, you got to get out of there. And so when I got to Canada and I saw this guy in the street corner, the first thing that I was like, I was like, dude, I talked to him and he didn't seem like a really hard dude because the people in my country that sell drugs, like, dude, these people are fucking hard. They kill people for like, they'll fucking kill you, man. Like any, any day of the week. And so I was like, damn, so I can talk to this dude. And then I met him and I found out that, yeah, I buy from some dudes, things for the angels. Oh, Angels. Okay, cool. So that's the first gang I heard about when I got here. I was like, okay, so Angels seems to be a player. And immediately, I got hooked up with these street people. They were all downtown east side people. And immediately, as soon as I got here, I saw the street market, the downtown east side, and my life was changed that day. Man. That day, my life was changed. I saw people getting arrested everywhere. There was mayhem. I don't know if you've been. Yes. Uh, Paul, did you spend time in the downtown east side? Okay, so Definitely. why don't we talk a little, like, explain what that is to Australians. What is the downtown east side? I still remember the first day that we arrived in Canada, my girlfriend and I, we spent two years there and we were staying with some friends in Mount Pleasant and we were taking a bus into the city and they were like, just as you approach downtown east side, just be prepared for a very confronting scene. And I was really glad we got that heads up because what you see in an incredibly progressive city, in an incredibly liberal city, is this stretch of a few blocks where you've got the fringes of Vancouver and probably the fringes of Canada converging on this area where there are, you know, health resources and there are supports, but living in, you know, what is essentially a shanty town. Like anyone who spent time on the West coast of North America will see these big encampments of people trading goods, living in tents, using drugs openly on the streets. It's a very confronting scene. You know, someone from Australia, I'd never seen anything like that. Well, now imagine somebody from Mexico that like that exists, but it exists in barrios that like nobody can even fucking go into to be, to begin with. A barrio is a Spanish for for uh, a neighborhood, the really rough neighborhoods, right? So I'd seen fucked up. I'm from Mexico, man. I'd seen all kinds of crazy stuff. But when I went there, I was like, damn, this is hard. And and, and I was not just like this is hard. This is also beautiful because I saw how people that were using drugs were getting somewhat respected by police officers. And I was like, Oh my God, this was 2001. And I was, yeah, dude, I saw cops drive by me with a joint in my hand. And I was like, Oh my God, I can smoke weed. And this cop doesn't give a fuck about me. Cause there's a dude smoking crap right next to me. And like, and that's, that moment was a big eye opening moment for me. I was like, okay, this is a world of possibility for me because I come from a world where I, I had already been an activist in Mexico, but I was a social activist. I was like, there was a big revolution happening in Mexico called the Zapatista Revolution. And my family actually doesn't know a lot about this. And a lot of my friends don't know about this, but I was very pro-Zapatista. I was a very hardcore leftist, almost. You could call me, a, yeah, people call me socialist and communist. But really what I am is I hate uh, poor people getting trampled on by the wealthy. And in my country, it's everywhere and it's disgusting and I hate it. 
And um, I always have, even as a child, it was instinctual to me. When I came out to downtown Eastside, because being an activist in Mexico is hard, man. Like, you are afraid of getting killed as an activist in Mexico. You know that? Like, if you're going to be against the people fucking up the environment or the people that are, like, robbing something from your community and you're going to be an activist, those people can hire somebody really cheap and they can kill you and then you're done and then that's it. So you're going to be an activist in my country. It's different than being an activist in the States or, or Canada. I got to say that to start. So I came from a small circle of people that were into computers, into programming, and into social activism that like were not connected to my central group of friends in high school. Now, already I came with like a little bit of understanding of, okay, man, if you're a little bit progressive and you're willing to take some risks, you can do some crazy shit. So I started my legal business uh, a few years after I arrived to Canada uh, on the campus of UBC as part of my activism because people just didn't have a good clean weed at a good price and they were getting fucked left and right because there was no accessible medicine for people. And I said, fuck this, I'm going to start selling medicine. And some of, some professors were my were my clients. Um, <laughs> I had clients that were police. I had clients that were... Um, I noticed that in, in Canada, like the firemen were my, my client, like everybody, I have the best suite on campus. Everybody was my fucking client. Everybody was my client. I was destroying. And that's when I made the leap to say, okay, well, fuck man. Like, cause they were busting other, other dealers on campus were getting busted. But funnily enough, the most vocal, the most I was, dude, I was running classrooms assigned to me by UBC where I was teaching people how to grow weed teaching them how to distinguish whether or not their weed was moldy. Um, this was 2002, man, 2003, like way back in the day, maybe four or five is when I started. But anyways, point being that like, I realized very quickly that in Canada, being socially conscious and being vocal is a good thing for somebody who's breaking the law in that way. Right. If you're breaking the law, yeah, dude, if you're, if you're helping people and you're literally doing a service that needs to exist and you're doing it with your heart because you believe in it, because I'm patient, I started using cannabis as a medical patient for insomnia and depression when I was 16 and it changed my life. And I know what that can do for somebody. So like I had the passion for day one, man. I had eight different flavors out of my bag. I knew what all of them were. I knew who the growers were. Those growers loved me. I love those growers. I was developing those relationships. By the time it was like 2009, I already worked in all kinds of dispensaries as a volunteer mostly because that's how much I love weed. I just wanted to see what the dispensary was selling. I was selling on the side. I just wanted to see what they were doing. I was like, what are you guys who, and who are your connects and who are your growers? And I'd get really hooked up and I'd work for free for the first three years of my career. I'd work for free, no pay. They'd give me weed sometimes and I'd be really happy to take that because they had some bomb ass shit. So yeah, man, I've been, I, I broke the law of this country, but I knew that if I got caught, I would get deported, not put in jail. You need to understand that about me. I, I didn't have my citizenship until... I don't know, six years ago, man. For a long time, I didn't even think, because I didn't think they would give it to me. I wouldn't apply because I was like, dude, I've done, everybody knows who I am. Everybody knows what I, I've done. Dude, I did all kinds of crazy shit, man. Like protests, like you don't know, man, all the insane shit that I did on that campus. I was like, okay, so university knows what I do. They're not booting me out because everybody knows what I am and they don't want the, the political splashback. Eventually that became, I think, the situation with the city where, the city was like, well, we're not going to put those guys in jail because those people, we're not going to go take raid them 
because they're actually serving patients and they're very real about what they do. And if we take them to the court of law, it's going to look bad, bad on our cops. So fuck that. And that was basically the formula for revolt everywhere around. We learned that from the Americans, by the way. All that was learned from California. Yeah, man. California broke it open. We were like, oh, shit, you can do that. Berkeley was the first place. All the university people, just like just like this that happened here, man. But I wasn't really the guy, to be honest with you, man. I had like nothing to do with the early phase breaking of the law around here. It was all uh, mostly by the Buyers Club from Vancouver Island, which was the oldest club in Canada, and the Compassion Club, which just is about to get closed down right now. They're on 14th and Commercial. Big shout out to those people because those are the real OGs in Canada. Those are the people that have to be looked up to. I was like part of a later effort to then get the city to stop raiding us, which I was quite successful at. But like that's later, 2009, 2010, 11, you know. Yeah, by then there was a scene, man. It's good to give a shout out to those OGs, the Buyers Club and the Compassion Club, because I think this is an important element of legalization where these forefathers, these bedrocks have been left behind in the new process. They have been pushed to the side. You know, while I was in Canada, there was a constant talk about shutting them down. And you're saying that it's they're still fighting against that, but obviously might be coming to an end. So let's actually talk about those guys a little bit because they did such important work. They laid a foundation for all of us to continue. And now here they are not being included. Well, it's, it sucks, man. Ted Smith and so I got a chance to hang with Ted and like, yeah, man, he's not stoked to play that much. They're taking him back to court and a bunch of charges that he's fought and won in the past and that he's still dealing with now. Uh, his shop got levied uh, over a million dollars in fines. They're the first shop in Canada, the people that started the entire movement and the federal government decided it was a good job to basically make it financially unfeasible for them to continue to operate, which is just absolutely fucking bullshit. Um, and then we have the Compassion Club, which again, same situation. They've been warned, 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 uh, levied fees. Uh, they can't pay the fees. Uh, they're getting close. That's something um, that is called the Community Safety Unit. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, you is... Man, is there a more Orwellian name department in Canada? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it exists, but it's fucking crazy, man. The safety unit is closing down the shop that gets patients safe access to good quality medicine at a better price. And the government can provide it. And um, yeah, that's safety, apparently. So that's what's going on right now in Canada. The OGs are getting closed down. And in those stores, there's people that know what they're talking about. This is the thing, you know, as a bud tender, there was absolutely no room for me to talk about medical benefits or effects. That's part of the Cannabis Act in Canada. So you've wiped out all these people that know what they're talking about. You're taking away their platform and the people they're serving haven't been included in the Cannabis Act. Uh, and I'll be frank with you that I don't completely disagree with taking away the right for people behind the counter of a dispensary to talk about medical conditions. I do personally believe that you need a specialized environment for that and that you cannot possibly train people in a role where you're going to pay them between $18 to $24 on the hour uh, at that level of capacitation, because that's training people on contraindications. It's training people on a multitude of conditions. It's training people on nurse work, and that's just not something that's feasible. Nurses get paid $35 on the hour in Canada. That's what a nurse should get paid. That's the amount of training, the amount of stress, 
the amount of real life situations that you have to be exposed to, the amount of risk you need to be exposed to as a medical pr practitioner and provider. That's not really something. See, the thing is, man, like I've done the work and it, it, it does need to be there. And in the context of modernity, there should have been an allowance for OG medical establishments to do that transfer, to make, to make it so that they can join us. There should have absolutely been that. Now, are, is a mainstream dispensary, does it have to be medically trained individuals to provide cannabis over the counter? Fuck no, man. Anybody, anybody with a basic amount of training should be able to dispense cannabis. And those of us that are in that setting probably should not be responding to questions of a medical nature. When I walk into a recreational dispensary and some dude's trying to sell my friend on that five milligram CBG capsule on anti-inflammatory properties, I'm going to be like, no, <laughs> dude, no, that's yeah. what, that's what the product rep told you to say, that's but that's it. not the truth. Okay. That was on their slideshow. <laughs> Anyways. That's no, that's a great point. And I and I guess that's where the distinction needs to be made. We don't want people coming in on minimum wage giving out medical advice, but there are all these people that were absolutely left behind that do know what they're talking about and have, like you, genuinely helped people over the years. So definitely a, an interesting part of the Cannabis Act is the way that the people who built the culture and reduced the stigma aren't there to kind of enjoy the fruits of their labor. And it's yet to be seen. I think that the government of Canada is a great candidate to change their path and to improve. We've got a great court here. Uh, we've got a lot of good people in government. I think that like, I'm not this kind of person that's like, they're just, they just want to fuck us. No, it's not. It, I, I really, I'm the kind of person that's worked with people in government. And like, I'm like, no, they're normal people like you and I. They just don't come from our world. And you just have to gradually introduce them. And they're. I think they're going to get it. I think like, because you know what's going on that like, People like me nowadays, we're getting a lot like if you did some important shit or if you can grow some badass weed and people know that you were doing that for a while, like it is pretty easy for us to get good jobs right now. I do have to say that. And, and like maybe I'm saying that because I'm a little bit spoiled and privileged in my position for sure. Like I worked for a long time to build my name and my brand and people perceive me a certain way. But like I do think that like the OG community as soon as you're like, yeah, no, I was involved in this. I did this. Here's a proof of my work. It really does count towards your benefit in a company that's looking for legitimacy. And so many of them are. You end up being a bit of a mascot and you end up being somebody that is a person that people look to and they ask questions. My experience at Sensi, and I'm not saying that I'm for Sensi Brands, by the way, but I do think that like, I, I love that people are looking to us when we are perceived the right way. Some folks, I, I do have to say this, there's some, a lot of people that are OG that are so rough around the edges that haven't worked in a corporate structure, that have not worked around scientists that do not think scientifically. Some of them, like, I have to say it, like deep into the anti-vax community, they think that our government is run by reptilian creatures. <laughs> okay, like, yeah, I have to say that about our weed community too, you know, like we fly off the rails a lot of us don't live in the real world. Uh, as, and, and some of those people are the ex-brokers, the ex-growers that were making big bucks and were living really privileged lifestyles for a long time. And right now, duck, 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 all that is dwindling. Oh, they're like, where the fuck is all that money? Well, it's not going to come back to you folks, unfortunately, because the underground, I don't know if you know a lot about it, but it's like crashing and burning so hard everywhere in North America right now. It's not just Canada. 
crashing and burning hard, man. The price of the pound. You guess what the price of the pound is right now in Canada? Average quality cannabis. What do you think the price of a pound is right now on the street? Twelve hundred dollars. Keep going. Eight hundred. Keep going. Whoa. Six hundred. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Now you're getting to a place where I'm like, okay, maybe I would, maybe somebody if it was it's decent. You have to have killer weed to get close to that thousand level. Killer. And then if it, if you got the best weed, you're at 15, 16. You've got the, like the best weed in the world, like the finest ganja that like only the most. Exp- yeah, that's. And, and yeah, there's definitely some people that are growing rare hazes and rarities that are that are crossing people like, you know, I could say some names, but very niche growers that are doing these ridiculous things like 16 week combos that come out like this, like big chunks like that, that, yeah, that they'll charge that close to the 2000 range that we're all used to the 2000 range that you require to sustain an industry. If you don't have that 2000 range. Everybody's starting to get tight, 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 tight. You start getting to where our, our legal business is right now. Then you, once you cross into that 600 on the pound range, Oh my God, it is a slaughter. It's ugly. Nobody can make money. Nobody can pay bills. So everybody's closing shop. It's a race to the bottom in terms of quality because I still remember from your course, you know, you spoke about kind of unforgivable quality issues. And one of them was dryness of bud and no aroma. Yet that is one of the most common complaints in the legal industry. So it's a real shame that that kind of connoisseur level is being lost. And we are entering into a territory where things could be considered lower quality that are just becoming the norm. Yeah, well. I mean, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but things are getting way better here. The legal business, I mean, you gotta you gotta give credit where credit is due. Legal business is getting just miles better every day. There's people like, dude, I look, I rep this brand, and they're considered to be, oh, it's a value brand. If you smoke my Pineapple Express, dude, it's fucking fire, and it costs thirty one dollars at thirty one dollars on the quarter. So. Canada's dude, Canada's game right now. I just came back from Cali. I've been to California three times this year. Okay. I bought a lot of weed down there. It's good and everything. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's really good. Cali weed is great weed, but the Canada game is on par right now. Probably better because we've got a federal system integrated. You can sell uh, uh, nationwide. There's more competitors. People are upping their game. Everything's getting tighter and tighter in regards to who's selling at what price point and how good their weed is. Their weed is, man. Now we've got people selling value bud at $120 on the ounce, fucking $31 on on seven gram bag. You're going to pull this shit out and it's going to reek like a mofo. It's going to burn white. It's going to be sticky, icky. Dude, you you can't believe this shit. So all I'm saying is that once we, once the legal business gets to the point where it is right now in Canada, that's when it becomes real hard for anybody that comes from the world that I come from to survive. And that's why many years ago I decided, as soon as I got my citizenship, frankly, that's when my, I was like, okay, now this shit is real. Now it's not just a <laughs> Sign me up. And the government of Canada said, you know what? Yes, you get to get in. You get to get in, man. Also, I had no charges, no violence, no gangs. I don't do any of that stuff, right? I never touched a gun in my life. Right? I don't, I just don't, if you carry a gun, I'm not going to do a deal with you again. That's a very clear rule that I have for myself, which is a problem, by the way, in the UK and other parts of the world or Sinaloa, word up, everybody's got a fucking Uzi in Sinaloa, man. Shit. 
So yeah, everybody, dude, you you gotta, you got it's like in, in the air, baby. It's crazy, man. I want to actually talk a little bit more about your work with Sensi Brands because this is a relatively new position for you. Tell us about what you're doing with Sensi Brands at the moment and where you're heading. I am building relationship with retailers right now. I'm meeting all the retailers face to face because I want to be bringing my unique cultivars to market soon. And I want it to be a personal experience for them. I want it to be like, oh yeah, Adolfo is the face of this company. He's the person I trust. And oh, this this flower was curated by him. This flower was bred by him. This flower is literally him saying, I believe in this. Here you go. Right. So it's me basically putting, yeah, it's me putting basically all, all the weight of my person behind a company because I'm putting my genetics into it. I'm putting my footwork going store to store. Now, keep in mind that I used to run a company that was focused on selling tested flour to illicit dispensaries. After I quit dispensary work and I, I quit doing R&D, I saw a need for uh, pesticide-tested uh, cannabis. A lot of people were testing for cannabinoids and terpenes. I said, actually, in the illicit field, the number one thing you want to test for is pesticides. So I started doing that for a living, and it made me have to drive around all day with weed in my backpack, showing people ganja. Yeah, showing people ganja store to store. And being like, hey, how you doing? My name's Adolfo. I used to be your competitor. I used to run the shop down the street. Now I'm hooked up with my growers and I'm bringing you their product. What do you think? You show them 12 different things. So now my life is exactly the same at Sensei Brands. Now it's, I, I go from store to store to store. I've got these amazing cultivars in my bag, dude. I've got like banana cream right now. I've got the pineapple express. I've got the frosted cherries. Uh-huh. I've got all the classics, the amnesia haze, the ghost train haze, the pink kush, DMK. Dude, I got everything, baby. And so I, I walk around just like literally showing people weed. And if they can, I place with them and then go about my way, man. So it's like, I have to tell you that uh, big shout out to the Sensi Brands team because like it's my dream come true. Honestly, I thought, like, when I was a teacher, dude, I have to be honest, it's stressful being a teacher for me because I'm a grower and I'm a distributor and I'm used to a certain lifestyle and being connected to, like, the pulse of things. Like, I know what's happening. I know everybody. Everybody knows me. And, yeah, teaching exposed me to a lot of people, but I wasn't exposed to enough plants. Right. I didn't have enough, dude. I didn't have enough flow, man. I didn't have, like any pounds to look at. I didn't look at any rooms. That sustains like, you. <laughs> dude, it's like, I was like getting a little, and the other thing is, I'll be honest with you, uh, being a teacher is not a lucrative job. People think that, oh, you own your own company. For me, my employees are number one. My employees got to get paid. My employees aren't going to get paid. I got to step off payroll. And if you got to step off payroll and you're a teacher and you're already not making a boatload of money, that's best for you and your family, man. That's like, you better have some money in the bank to be able to run a company that does cannabis sommelier training that's very innovative. Yes. Unfortunately, the current CEO is that person. She's got a huge amount of passion, and she's uh, this person that I know can drive it home. I know that if anybody's going to keep it alive, it's Julie. That's the reason why I decided to step off the cannabis sommelier train, because me and my family, we needed a break. I've been traveling, teaching this thing for six years straight, and now I only travel to BC. I spend... All my time here with my PC peeps, looking at plants, looking at rooms, showing plants, meeting the, the current retailers. And I just have to say, dude, like my life is, 
like I don't I don't feel like I work. I don't feel like I work. I, my wife, my wife is like, you work way too much. Dude. <laughs> I get off of my eight hour. I get before or after my eight hour job, I'm going to one of my farms. So I get up at six to go here. And then I come after I do eight hours at Tenzi. And then sometimes I'll go somewhere else because none of it feels like work to me, dude. It doesn't, I don't get tired. Why would I not want to go? By the way, people aren't paying me to go to these sites. Like these are the sites where I've got my girls. I'm going to go look at what what this new F1 generation is doing, what that F2 is doing, what's going on. I have to I I have to be in the room with the girls. Otherwise, if I'm on the road all the time, dude, like doing presentations, I go crazy, man. I'm a farmer, bro. That's that's what I grew up being like or wanting to be. Honestly, I couldn't be that in Mexico, right? And I was like, I want to do this. I want to grow my own weed. And, and and when I started doing it, I was like, that's it. This is what I'll do before I die. And I literally, like after I grew my first plant, I was like, I could see myself in a beach with a bunch of plants. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I will die. Is I don't need a lot uh, of money or attention or fr- even to be honest with you, I'm kind of antisocial because I don't have a lot of time for humans, man. I have to build relationships with like over 200 plants that I need to know really well. Because I have over 300 unique plants, bro. Wow. So I don't even know all the plants that I'm breeding right now. <laughs> I don't know. I literally, I rely on my community and, of course, on the genius that I work with, Mikey Chi. He knows plants like this so well and he remembers them all. He's got this like photographic memory for smell that I thought I had, but this was better than me. And he just happens to be my breeding partner. So, yeah, I'm a... Uh, my life at Sensi, dude, is is just a humongous blessing. And yeah, I, I'm so lucky to be alive, not in jail, not killed. And just to be here living and breathing feels so, such a blessing, man. Yeah, I feel really happy. It's fantastic to hear people like you laud the virtues of the legal industry because ultimately, you know, I do believe it's better to be legal than not. It's better to be in the industry trying to change it from within than, you know, being on the outside complaining like a lot of people do. But the education and knowledge of someone like you is so important. It's people like you saying that the industry is important. That means so, so much. It's great for you to say how great the Canadian butt is, but I still think some of the best stuff I saw was in that suitcase of yours at the Canner Reps course. You know, some of the most aromatic things I'd ever smelt, things that I'd never saw again in Canada. You truly did have some unique genetics there. So it's very exciting that you've got those in the pipeline and you're attaching that kind of, personal brand to the business so people know the quality that they're getting. Something that really stood out in the course for me is, and it might've been a bit of a throwaway line, but it was at this stage, practically everything is a hybrid. People get really caught up on Indica, Sativa, hybrid, still important classifications for your average customer, your average user. But I know that we need to move beyond that. We don't really have an agreed replacement yet, but talk to us a little bit about that. You know, everything is practically a hybrid. Even when you're talking about land-raised populations, think about how pollen travels. You don't need a bird. You don't need a bee. It goes on the wind. And the wind, depending on where you're positioned, can take pollen a very, very far distance. And that means that if you have a geographical area where there is cannabis in a semi-wild state, it means that you have never-ending plots of land with pollen in them. And that pollen is hitting multiple females, impregnating uh, females in a radius 
that is larger than you would think. And all of these circles are overlapped. And so that means that the populations that are very far distance away have a genetic relationship with uh, a population that's down that way. And it's just very rare to have populations in a geographic area that are, they look different, they might smell different, but if you look at the genes and you're like, yeah, they're related. And so Shitral Kush is a great example. Shitral in the, in the Shitral Valley, uh, Pakistan, at about uh, zero to 500 meter elevation, you'll find that on the map. You'll see, oh, well, this is where you're supposed to have Indicas. And they'll be like, well, no, this motherfucker grows kind of tall and elongated, and it smells like citrus with berries. It's got really red coloration cola, and it's, you call it a kush. And if you test the genetics, you're like, oh, shit, it's got some relationship to Afghans and kushes. Yeah, it's actually really closely related. So when you're looking at land races, you're, you're looking at a gene pool that you're like, yeah, they're pretty closely related to each other. And that's why scientists call it a single species. And that there's only two subspecies, and that's actually hemp and drug type cannabis. All drug type cannabis is considered the same subspecies according to the scientific community. So there is no indica sativa subspecies. No, no, no. There's broadleaf and narrow leaf varieties of the drug type plant and everything in between, but they are one subspecies that are very closely genetically related. Now, are there no variations between regions? There's no varietals from different regions? Well, of course there are. There's a shit ton of different varietals that you can learn about from different regions. Just learn about them as like a piece of ethnobotanical history that's sitting there in Africa or in Mexico. And don't think of it, oh, it's just a land race that's always been here. Think about it like from a historical perspective. Are the plants from Mexico actually, have they been there since time immemorial? Well, if you look into the record, I, I, I my degree in, in university was archaeology and psychology. I have to, okay? And I can tell you because I practice archaeology in Mexico that it's very unlikely that Native people had a significant influence of cannabis before the, the, uh, the conquest. Maybe there was some weed there. I'm not saying that it's impossible that the weed was there. I'm saying that it wasn't a significant cultural influence. The, the, the natives were taking other drugs, like peyote, like mushrooms, like uh, ayahuasca down south, but not in Mexico. So looking at land races, you study them and you get to know them and you're like, well, fuck, man. Mangarosa has a lot to do with South Indians. This, this mango and this coloration of plant and how she grows, maturation period, very similar to a lot of South Indians. And then you look at a lot of Colombians and you're like, well, they're very similar to Mexicans. And the Mexicans, if you test their genome, you're like, well, they have a lot of similarity to the South Indians again. So you start to look at the intersections between certain studies, some of them published, some of them not. I got the chance to work with R&D communities that were sharing a lot of information internally because we're geeks and we call each other. What are you finding? What are you finding? What are you growing? And we talk to each other and we're like, oh, shit. Okay, well, everything that Merlin and Clark wrote about everything that Hillig published afterwards to reinforce the work of Merlin and Clark, that these academic currents have some value to them. And so you have these amazing publications that reinforce what the hippies have been saying about where weed comes from. And then people that are really informed, man, we've always known that this plant is like about regional specification. You can't be like, the Malawi is like every other sativa. Well, fuck no, man. 
So like it's got more THC, it's got more mercine, it hits you harder. It's not like a Congolese, which is typically more limonene or terpenoline dominant with a little bit of pining that creeps up that makes it a lot softer on the stone. And it's not very thiol heavy, although we don't really know how influential thiols and esters are. Really, the, the discussion of plants is regional typicity. You know that there's typical plants from different regions that we all need to learn about. And the biochemical markers, which make them distinct. That's the conversation. The conversation shouldn't be indica sativa hybrid. That's for entry-level consumer, which the majority of the market will always be. And I encourage people out there to consider replacing those words in common speak with this. Indica, skunky, gassy, acrid, aromas, sativa, sweet and fruity. Hybrid, desserts, in the middle. It can be gassy, it can be sweet, in the middle. Most of them tend to be desserts nowadays, but they can be other things. Really, for me, the whole, again, when I'm trying to take words that don't really mean anything and try to make them mean something, you're always going to make mistakes. But because, like, a cheese is a hybrid and it's acrid, and it has low THC, unlike most of the common indica hybrids, but it slaps, even though it's got 18%. We don't know why it slaps because it's beta-carophylline, limonene, uh, mercy dominant, uh, but maybe it's the thiol that's doing it. We don't really know. We haven't really done a, uh, any kind of data collection on the, on the modulatory role of the thiol. And for people out there that don't know what it is, remember, Adolfo doesn't like to talk so much about indica sativa and hybrid. I like to talk about indicas are, again, gassy, acrid which are thiol-driven aromas, sulfuric-based compound-driven aromas. You can't have skunk, you can't have gas, you can't have cheese without a thiol present, period, full stop. You can't do it. In nature, in general, you can't produce those aromas without a thiol present. Likewise, you cannot produce a pineapple, a strawberry, um, a berry. Uh, you can't produce a... Um, a lot of aromas without the presence of an ester. You can't do it. Only citrus aromas and floral aromas and some woods are terpene-driven. Earth also can be terpene-driven. But only that narrow range of aroma profiles is really terpene, 100% terpene-driven. And it doesn't really need other type of biochemical compounds to give you this expression or that expression. So a lot of people now have shifted from talking about it's all about the terpenes, man. Well, guess what? That's bullshit too. <laughs> You're blowing my mind here, man. Well, remember, yo, but I taught you that in class. Even though back then I didn't know, uh, I think three years ago, I didn't have thiols and esters in my subject. Uh, I didn't have it in my content because thiols and esters, I, I had been talked about thiols and esters, but I didn't know enough about them to talk in a, in, a, in a classroom. And I hadn't really spoken to anyone that was, that revealed enough to me. Everybody was super like holding their cards back because it was back then four years ago, this shit was like, nobody, like the people that knew were like, oh, should I tell people, should I tell people? <laughs> and now, and, and remember the core part of my course was telling people that we don't have the full picture and that all of these interpreters, all these chirping influencers, all these are like, we didn't tell you exactly how it's going to make you feel. I'm like, well, you know what? If you smell black lime, it smells like citrus. 
You think it's going to make you feel like a haze? Okay, go smoke that black lime. Uh, go smoke the new version of Super Silver Haze, which everybody's like, oh, Super Silver Haze, well, it's going to make you feel like a haze, right? Like clean your house. Sativa's clean your house, right? Well, guess what? The new version's been hybridized with um, a Tahoe OG that raised the THC to about 26% and made the person dominant and God knows what else. And now it'll kick you in the gut so hard that it's stronger than most indicas out there. It feels like strong in the body, behind the eyes for a lot of people. Another example, uh, the Lemon Royale, which is a lemon tree that's been banged into the GMO line that then was crossed into the Triangle OG. But it retained most of the lemon profile coming from the lemon tree. So it's lemon tree dome on the nose, but on the kick, it's not lemon tree dome. On the kick, it feels like a GMO. It feels like that OG. It feels like pow. Nowadays, beware with the shit that they teach in interpreting. And it's not because it's a different school that I didn't write. I don't give a fuck. I talked to Max Montrose and I said, Max, I don't agree. Respect what you've accomplished, but I don't agree. I don't agree that you can train anybody to use their nose to go, it's got this much terpenoline in it and it's going to make you feel like that. You know why I don't think that? Because I've Listen to Sam the Skunk Man and Ryan Lee, and they can't do it. Because these people are the people that we all listen to. The person I listen to, I shut up and I listen to Sam. I shut up and I listen to Ryan. I shut up. Because Ryan has a degree. <laughs> He's basically a neuroscientist that's been breeding cannabis for specific effects. That's who Ethan Russo used. And I'll say that word, used. Like he's used a lot of this community about his patented methodology to peddle the concept that you can tell people today exactly how a cultivar is going to make them feel, okay? And still, shout out to Ethan Russo because I've got a lot of respect for what he's accomplished and the positivity that he's also brought to our community, despite the fact that he's patented and sold his methodology too early. He doesn't have the data to prove the things that he claims, and a lot of the formulations that carry his name, like calm, like energy, are based on his limited data set, which is incomplete. And remember, Paul, that's what you learned in my class, bro. Remember that. That's why you're like, you're shattering my world. <laughs> but I shouldn't be shattering your world. This is one of the things that like, I fail to really instill in my students at Cataracts. They, all of us, because I still love Ethan Russo, dude. And everything that he's wrote, I bring it into the classroom and I show it to you. He's the fucking man. But at the same time, nothing in, in life to me is black and white. I'm a free thinker. I'm not a conservative and I'm definitely not a liberal. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not anything. That's how a human should always be. You shouldn't always be. You should never be like, I'm an in I do terpene classes. Anybody that's been doing terpene classes in the past 10 years, They've done some good things and they've also done a disservice at the same time. It's not like all of you have done it. You've done, you've gone fucked up. I talk about <laughs> herpes, okay? No, that's not what I'm saying either. It's a process of discovery. It's a process of realization. Culture is always in flux. But to say we know when we don't know is a core problem with the cannabis community. To say we know this cures cancer this way, that this cures epilepsy in that way 
I think that it helps. I personally definitely think that it helps people with cancer in a multitude of ways, including uh, decreasing the size of a tumor. I've seen it, so I believe it. That doesn't mean that I know cannabis cures cancer. I've helped a lot of families uh, get rid of their epileptic drugs. Uh, epileptic children, I believe, are a lot of them are alive because of my work today. But does that mean that I know how to cure epilepsy with cannabis? I don't say that. That's the problem with our community, bro. That's I was like a begrudging candidate of this work. I had to do it because I saw people that did not know how to think scientifically were doing it, hurting people left and right. And so I started collecting data, asking the people that were paying my salary to, hey, can we collect data on this shit? And can I hand you the data? And can you make the data part of your business model? Can you make it part of what makes your business model more valuable? That's what I pitched to dispensaries early on. I was very successful at doing that. And dude, that's what we need more of. We need people that aren't like, just like standing around being like, this does this, this does that. Mucine is the couch lock and pinene <laughs> is for better memory, man. When the fuck has anybody smoked weed and have better memory? Sure, maybe there's a subset of the population. Dude, maybe there is some people. No, straight up, maybe there is. But do we have the data to know what subset of the population is going to benefit for their memory when they have a pining dominant cultivar? No, we have not conducted that fucking research. That's the point. That's how we need to be thinking. Double-blind clinical model trial with humans in it, not fucking animals, not in the Petri dish. We need to learn how to interpret scientific data. We need to learn that our culture, people like Sam the Skunk Man and Ryan Lee are like, that's where the culture flows. And if you talk to them for two seconds, you talk to DJ Short for two seconds, you're like, this is a scientifically inclined human. This is a scientifically inclined human being. And that's what we need in all phases of humanity. In the government, in the schools, fucking the church, for real. I'm so glad for you to kind of proselytize that idea because you have the OG experience, you've seen the culture, you've been part of it, but you still see we need to do more. We still need to enhance what we're doing, improve what we're doing, the accountability, the justification. If this truly does help people, we need to be able to show how and why. Well, um, it's a beautiful thing, brother. It's happening now. Money's pouring into the research sector. There's so many. Uh, shout out M MJ Malloy at uh, UBC. Shout out Zach. Uh, Walsh at UBC. Uh, these are people that um, they took note of my work, always incredibly supportive. Just big shout out UBC, man. Like, honestly, what a fucking institution of forward thinking individuals that could have executed me so many times <laughs> right out of that circle and chose to be kind to cannabis people, man. And still to this day are doing so much now for the psychedelic realm, as well as for hard drugs, they're making it clear that we should be selling heroin, cocaine, crack to people that comes out of a lab so that we can get them on programs, uh, keep them from dying and get them off of the junk, man, and literally get them to use less. And there are real case studies of countries that have uh, got, you know, government sanctioned heroin. I, I believe it's Switzerland that for the last 16 years have had government issued heroin and haven't had an overdose death since then so there's some real virtue you know vancouver itself safe supply of heroin during the pandemic these things help people survive and you know ultimately hopefully get better it's a, a big turning point for humanity brother and we're here I've been really appreciative of your time today. We are approaching the hour mark and there's a hundred things we could talk about, but I think I'd like to just change gears a little bit, play a quick little rapid fire game. Are you up for that? Do it. 
Excellent. All right. Well, we've got a countdown timer here. I'm going to throw some kind of black and white questions. You do your best to be short and sharp with them. Let's do it. Best thing about the cannabis industry? The weed, the plants. People always say it's the community. Yes, but not to the community with people, the community with the plant. Love it. Worst thing about the cannabis industry? Oh, the suits and people fucking each other over and not paying <laughs> bills for folks that work hard and love the plant. Oh, that's the worst. Joints or blunts? Joints all day. No question. Next. Bongs or pipes? Oh, bongs, but neither really bongs. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite place to consume? In the ocean, around the ocean, in front of the ocean. Are the munchies real? <laughs> Scientifically proven, baby, yes. <laughs> Is BC Bud the best in the world? <sighs> Sometimes. And lucky last, describe your perfect 420. Oh, as long as the weed is good, it's gotta be on the beach. And uh, friends, yeah, man, the beach, good weed, friends. Ideally, a new flavor revealed on that day. That's my goal, that from this year forward, every 420, I will be releasing a new flavor and having a, a cultivar release party. So I'm, I'll no longer be going to anybody's 420 party, by the way. I'll be doing my own, hopefully... Hopefully you'll join me, Paul, one day, huh? Mate, as soon as airfares are a reasonable price, I'm going to be straight back. I need to try some of this Sensi brand stuff. And I, I, I miss your buds, man. I really do. Dude, thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure talking to you. And uh, anytime, man, anytime. It's been a real treat. Where can our listeners find you on the internet? Where should they look you up? Okay. So I actually started an Instagram this month. Uh, BC Sensi on Instagram. Uh, Adolfo Gonzalez on Twitter uh, and anybody that just wants to reach out uh, reach out to me I'm always open to talk Adolfo at sensibrands.ca is my email reach out to me right love and respect to everyone out there your passion and enthusiasm is just incredible I'm so grateful for your time today thanks so much for joining us keep up the good work Paul see you soon Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations is written and produced by me, Paul. Music written, produced, and performed by Big Mike. Follow us on Instagram at Give and Toke, or get in touch by emailing giveandtoke at gmail.com. All opinions expressed by program guests are solely their current opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of Give and Toke. Content discussed in this show does not constitute medical advice. Cannabis is not legal everywhere, so please respect local laws. <laughs>